Our Old Testament reading comes from the prophet Jeremiah. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him, let us denounce him, say all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived, then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading comes from the book of Romans. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. 
When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord, Lord Christ. Let's pray. We give you praise and thanks, Father, for gathering us together this morning, for the delight it is to be with one another and to celebrate and um, acknowledge your presence with us. We thank you for your word, pray you would teach us, Lord, um, grow us in our minds and our hearts and our souls and our knowledge of you. And we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you again uh, for being uh, with us. As I said, the welcome, it's been our tradition uh, for a number of years to move to a single service uh, during um, the summer, but usually it's lighter in July. So thank you so much for being with us. I'm sorry that it's a, a bit uh, crowded uh, today. So we even have an overflow area. So um, uh, so anyway, so thank you all for being patient. And um, maybe next week we'll have to do the obnoxious thing where we make everyone scooch in and sit closer together, which Minnesotans love to sit as close as possible uh, to one another. We understand that. So um, last week, uh, Pastor Andine uh, preached, and she began with a reference um, Reference to um, C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia uh, series, in particular, uh, The Magician's um, Nephew. And so I'm going to continue the trend and begin with a C.S. Lewis reference. Anglicans love to give C.S. Lewis references because it reminds people that he's an Anglican, uh, which we, um, you know, shows how cool we are as Anglicans, that C.S. Lewis is one of us. So, uh, but also it's just good that whenever you can quote C.S. Lewis, you should always do it because um, uh, we're all built up uh, by him. Um, so this is a reference actually from, uh, some of you may be familiar with the Space Trilogy. 
a different uh, work of fiction um, that he wrote, not as well known as Narnia, but I highly recommend um, the three books of the Space Trilogy. Um, and the second book is called Paralandra, um, and uh, it tells the, the story of a man named Ransom who is transported uh, to the planet of Venus. Um, in this case, Venus is hospitable. Um, and um, he um, comes into Venus, which is called Paralandra, um, in the book, and um, basically experiences it as a, like a newer world, as a young world. And so in most of the book, he interacts with a woman that he calls the green lady because she's green, but she's basically the Eve of that world. Um, she is the, the first woman, as before, right? There have been any more. Um, and so most of the book, again, is his interaction with her and with another character. But at the end of the book, at the end of Paralandra, he meets the king, um, that, um, uh, again, planet's version of Adam, the first man. And uh, in the book, um, uh, Ransom, the character, um, has explained uh, what he experienced to the narrator, who's actually called Lewis. Um, uh, and this is what the narrator says about um, Ransom's encounter with the king, with, again, this world's version of Adam, the first man. He says, it was hard for Ransom to tell me of the king's face, but we dare not withhold the truth. It was the face that no man can say he does not know. You might ask how it was possible to look upon it and not commit idolatry, not to mistake it for that of which it was the likeness. For the resemblance was, in its own fashion, infinite, so that almost you could wonder at finding no sorrow in his brow and no wounds in his hands and feet. Yet there was no danger of mistaking. Nay, the very beauty of it lay in the certainty that it was a copy, like and not the same, an echo, a rhyme, an exquisite reverberation of the uncreated music prolonged in a created medium. Like I said, it's always good, the quote of C.S. Lewis. So again, in this vision of this nation's, in this world's version of Adam, Ransom sees a face that looks like Jesus. Right, but he says it was a copy like and not the same, right? A, a rhyme, an echo of the true face. And in our passage today from Romans, we're in a, a series on Romans and we're hitting many of the major sections of Romans. We also have a comparison between Adam, our Adam, and Jesus. And in similar ways to what a Ransom experiences in that novel, we see that this Adam is like, but not the same to Jesus. There are ways in which they are like Adam and Jesus, and there are very important and essential and key ways in which they are different. And the Apostle Paul is laying out for us the likeness and the difference. And he has basically explained to us, this matters in your salvation. Understanding what, how Adam has affected us, understanding how Jesus has affected us is key to understanding the good news, key to understanding the gospel. And so again, he says at the end of that first paragraph, Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Part of understanding the ministry and the work of Jesus is understanding Adam and Adam and Eve, we can say more broadly. So again, let's start with the like. And the like is, again, both Adam and Jesus, their actions have affected us. Their actions had ha have had an impact on our life. And he begins um, uh, with Adam. It's actually interesting. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world, he's, he's beginning with a, a comparison, but then it's like he kind of gets, you know, sidetracked a little bit and has to say more about Adam uh, specifically. So we don't actually get the comparison until a little later in the passage. So it begins, right, with what did Adam basically bring? 
How did his actions affect us? And we see it right away in the first verse, right? In verse 12, first verse of our passage. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, right? And it's using man in the sense of humanity, right? Death came through one man, and now all have sinned. All have received, basically, sin. All have received death through his sin. But then also says, all sinned. Okay, now one question that comes up is, okay, why just speaking about Adam? All right, if you know the story of the temptation in Genesis 3, it was Adam and Eve. Maybe some of you say, oh, well, that's nice. You know, Paul's being nice to Eve. He's not including her. Maybe others are like, that's no fair, right? Eve was there, right? I mean, you should include both. Well, one explanation is clearly, right, um, Paul is setting up a comparison between two men, between Adam, right, the the first man and Jesus, right, the the son of God, right, Um, God in the flesh, true God and true man. And so that's an important comparison. And actually, this is not, does not begin with Paul. And when we look at the Gospels and we look at the ministry of Jesus, one theme we can see, right, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle, is that Jesus has come as the new Adam, right? Again, that's something he's never called the new Adam, but you see it actually in his ministry in various moments in the Gospels. So let me share one of my favorites. I, just, I love this moment, and I think it's so powerful. In the Gospel of Luke, right, there's a genealogy. So um, uh, there's also one in Matthew. In Matthew, it actually starts with Abraham, and it goes all the way down to Jesus, right? Is how, how Matthew shares his genealogy. But in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Luke actually begins with Jesus and sort of goes backward all the way to Adam, right? And so he has a lot of the son of, the son of, the son of, right? Beginning with Jesus and working kind of his way back in time, right? And so it ends with Adam, the son of God acknowledging that Adam was created directly by God. So in that sense, he is a son, right, of God. Right? And then the next um, story in the gospel, right after the genealogy, is the baptism. And so we have Jesus coming to be baptized. Right? The question, of course, always with Jesus being baptized is, why would Jesus be baptized, right? He's without sin. This is John's baptism. It's a baptism of repentance. Why would Jesus come to be baptized? And we see, oh, he's coming because he represents sinful people. He's coming as a representative of us. In being baptized, he's saying, I'm with you. And so we have Adam, who's a representative of us. This is the first person, right? We're all his descendants, right? And then we have Jesus coming as a representative. And what does it say when Jesus comes out of the water, right? What does the Father say um, when Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism? This is my son. And so you have Adam's been called a son of God, right? In the genealogy, we have Jesus now coming as our representative who the father affirms, this is my son. So in a sense, we have sort of two sons of God, right? Adam created directly by God, Jesus, the son of God. And then what's the next story, right? You remember? The temptation. And so suddenly we have Adam and we have Jesus. I'm getting choked up just thinking about it, right? And now the temptation's coming. And so we're all thinking, right? As we read that gospel, like, will this son of God given to temptation as the the first son of God as Adam did. And spoiler alert, he does not, right? He does not give in to temptation. And so right there, Luke is showing, right? There is a new Adam. And this Adam actually says no to temptation and says yes and puts his trust in God, which sadly the first Adam did not. He gave in to that temptation. And so again, that imagery, Paul is building on, right? Jesus is the new Adam. Now, there's also, again, a way in which, like I said, Adam is a representative, is the first person created. Again, Eve is obviously very important, and Paul at other points speaks about Adam and Eve, right? And they sinned together. Adam was right there next to her when she gave in, and he ate the fruit as well. 
But again, there's a representative role that Adam plays, even in his name, right? Adam means literally man, which again, was used as a, you know, a term for all of humanity. He's a representative even seen in his name. Now, the other question that comes up, though, as we read this is, okay, well, what does this mean about law, right? So, so it says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Right? This is, uh, again, something that comes up a few times in Romans, comes up in other places, where it feels almost like Paul's saying, well, the law was bad, like the law made sin worse. And there's a sense in which he is saying that. But it be clear, it's the sense in which, with the giving of the law, when the Lord gave the law to the, his people, he was showing them, this is the way I'm calling you to live. Right? He's giving them very explicit directions. This comes from my character. Right? This is who I am, and this is how I call you as my people to live. And so they had sinned before that, right? I mean, he says that all sinned, right? And there was sin before the giving of the law. But the giving of the law now shows this is the seriousness of sin, right? To, to stray away from my ways, which now I'm revealing to you, is to go against, right, who I am. And again, so there's actually a greater understanding of sin with the law. In a sense, the law shines a light on sin. So we get that as well. In the end of this passage, uh, verse 20, now the law came to increase the trespass, right? Again, that's not saying the law is bad, but it is saying with the giving of the law, you realize, oh, this is how serious the trespass is. This makes me see, oh, wow. I mean, you know, how far we fall short of the glory of God. And so in the um, verse um, uh, uh, 14 there, when it says, death reigned from Adam to Moses, he's waiting to point out, look, sin was at work in the world before the giving of the law. Death reigned, right, even for those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Meaning Adam was given a direct commandment from the Lord, don't eat this fruit, and he broke it. But he's saying there was still sin, even though it was not, you know, breaking a direct commandment. They were still singing against God. And actually, earlier in the book of Romans, he's pointed out even creation bears witness to who God is. Right? And so we have a clear message. All are responsible for their sin. All have sinned, and there's an element of responsibility in that. And yet alongside of that, there is a clear message. This is something we have inherited. What we see here, and again, this is important. We see this throughout Scripture, is sin is, is a power. Right? That with um, the sin of Adam and Eve and the disobedience of Adam and Eve, there was the power of sin that came into creation, came into humanity. And it's important when we think about sin that we recognize that dynamic in the scriptures, that it is a power that has led to a sinful world and a broken world. And so if you think about the suffering that comes as a result of natural disasters, right, which we see all the time and is heartbreaking, Right? We can say, well, maybe we can't link sort of that suffering to one person or to a group of persons' specific sin. I mean, depending on natural disaster, sometimes we can, but often we can't. We'd say that's just part of this world, right? I mean, sometimes we call them acts of God. It seems a little unfair to God, but it's understandable we would call them right, that, right? Because it's like, well, who do we blame for, you know, this hurricane? Well, let's blame God, right? You know, let's call it an act of God. And I actually know for a lot of people, you know, those sort of, you know, natural occurrences, natural disasters are really hard on their faith. I've had many conversations with people who say, man, like this hurricane, you know, this tsunami, you know, killed so many people. How, how do I understand that? And it's hard on our faith, right? Because it feels like, you know, at least other acts of evil, not that that's any easier in our faith, but I can blame a person on that. Or I can blame people on that. This just feels like it's coming from God. But we would say that's the power of sin. That's the brokenness of this world that sin has brought. Because Paul makes it very clear. Sin leads to death, right? They're connected. And so the, the work of death and the work of destruction in this world is a result of the power of sin. 
It's a broken world and a fallen world, and it's right that when we see natural disasters, when we see acts of suffering, that we say, this is not right. It shouldn't be this way, right? That's actually because we're made in God's image and we have that deep sense, it shouldn't be this way. This is not the way the world should be. And so we have the power of sin, but we also have acts of sin, right? Individual acts, corporate acts of sin, right? And we're responsible for those. We are called to repent as we sin, right? Those who sin are called to repentance and to turn away from that. So again, we can see that dynamic. But we also have to acknowledge, again, that even as it's, Paul speaks of responsibility, right? All have sinned, right? All are responsible for their sin. We can't get away from the fact that, you know, in verse um, 18, it says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Again, and then 19, very similar. For as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so we read that and we say, okay, like we've all inherited sin. Right, this has come to us. Condemnation has come to us. And we can read that and say, okay, but I'm responsible for that? Like, that was just given to me. Like, it was just forced upon me, and yet somehow I'm responsible. What do we do with that? Right? That's a, a big question. Now, in one sense, I think we can say, you know, Paul actually doesn't seem concerned. I mean, not that he doesn't care, but I think he's saying both are true. You know, he's not trying to resolve it. He's just saying, look, it's true that there's a responsibility you have, but it's also true that you've inherited, basically, this sinful nature, right? This is something that's happened to you, and yet you're still responsible. And I would actually say that's actually a dynamic I think that we live in a lot, and we acknowledge whether, you know, it's, we're theologians, whether we're Christians or not. I don't think it's controversial to say other people's sins affect us in a way that may lead us to sin. Or we could say other people's wrongs, right, affect us and may lead us to, to doing wrong, right? It's not controversial to say, you know, if someone grew up you know, with a, a distant um, and severe and perhaps cruel father, that it's not a surprise if at times then they act cruelly towards others, right, because of what happened to them, right? I mean, sadly, right, that's the case. But I think we'd also say, right, if you grew up with that experience and you're in a relationship and you're cruel to the person in that relationship and they say to you, you know, what you just did to me, that was wrong. If you say, you know, I had a distant, cruel father, I'm sorry, I don't need to apologize, right? I'm not responsible. We probably all say, well, okay, I can sympathize, right? I can acknowledge, yes, you know, your upbringing affected you, but, but you still need to take responsibility. I mean, again, I think that's a, a common dynamic. But let's just be honest. It's good to be honest, right? The analogy breaks down, doesn't it? Because the fact of the matter is someone could have a very hard childhood, and I know many, and I'm sure you do too, right, who actually grow up and are wonderful in their relationships and are kind, and, and we experience that. But this is telling us, the scriptures tell us, there's no one who has not sinned, but one, but Jesus. Everyone else is guilty of sin. Doesn't leave them the possibility. Maybe someday there'll be another, right? No, right? Jesus is it who is without sin. And so this is a hard teaching. We just have to acknowledge, for many people, it feels very unfair. I'm being called to repent of sins, but basically I had no choice. This is something I inherited. When you get into um, hard um, uh, theological um, teachings, uh, it's always good to quote smart people. So I uh, quote C.S. Lewis, and I'll quote a couple more uh, smart people that I think are helpful as we think about this doctrine, right? That sin is something we inherit um, and that we continue in that inheritance. It is something that's in a sense forced upon us. Uh, Blaise Pascal is a, a French uh, thinker, a, a brilliant thinker um, from um, centuries ago, but um, uh, again, brilliant and, and influential. And he says this about this teaching. He says, you must not reproach me for the want of reason in this doctrine, 
since I admit it, since I admit it to be without reason. But this foolishness is wiser than all the wisdom of men. For without this, what can we say that man is? His whole state depends on this imperceptible point. So he's basically saying, look, do you say it's unfair? Do you say it's without reason? Yeah, I agree. But I look around and I'm like, wow, like I see it. It's actually a way to explain humanity. I, I can see the reality of it. So it's basically unfair, but it really explains a lot. And then another quote from um, uh, Doug Moo, a, a contemporary um, Bible scholar, has written a, a really helpful commentary on the book of Romans. He says this. He says, why do people so consistently turn from good to evil of all kinds? Paul affirms in this passage that human solidarity and the sin of Adam is the explanation. And whether we explain this solidarity in terms of sinning in and with Adam or because of a corrupt nature inherited from him does not ultimately matter at this point. On any view, this, the biblical explanation for universal human sinfulness, appears to explain the data of history and experience as well as better than any rival history. Again, similar, right? Yes, this is really hard teaching. Yes, it's challenging to us, but it actually explains a lot, explains what we see. And finally, from Elvis Costello, singer-songwriter, he says, there's no such thing as an original sin. In other words, we see the reality of original sin and the fact that there's no such thing as an original sin. So, um, sorry, I had to get Elvis Costello um, in there. As we wrestle with this doctrine, and again, I don't want to take it lightly, because it is a heavy doctrine, right, to say our world is broken. Yes, I am born into sin, and yes, I continue in that pattern with my own sins. It's so good, right, that the message of our passage today is that's not all. Right? It doesn't end there. That's not the end of the story. And so, yes, we do need to face into this challenging doctrine, right? But that's where, yes, you know, Jesus and, and Adam have similarities in that their actions affect us all, but how their actions affect us all is the hinge, is the point of uh, this teaching, right? And so much of the teaching, right? It is the good news because in Adam, we receive death, right? Sin leads to death. In him, we have received condemnation. In Christ, we receive life. In Christ, there is life. And again, as you look at this passage, right, there are all the different sort of great theological words that Paul uses to speak of this life that we receive, but it's as simple as that. In Adam, we all die. In Christ, we have life, right? If we think of that death that we receive in Adam, and it is a physical death, yes, right? Jesus said, Adam and Eve, if you eat of this fruit of the tree, you will surely die, right? They didn't die immediately, but death was brought into the world, physical death. But of course, that's also speaking of a spiritual death, they were alienated from one another. They were alienated from God as they disobeyed him, right? And that's, again, the result of sin, that relational death. And it's an eternal death, an eternal separation from God, right? It's an inescapable death. Yet in Christ, right, we have life, and it is an abundant life. It is physical life. Because Jesus rose from the dead, right? We know there is a resurrection for us to come. There is eternal life, right? There is bodily resurrection that we look forward to and reigning for him for all creation. It's a spiritual life, right? In Christ, right, we have life, abundant life, life with meaning, right? Life with um, relationship with God, life with clarity and joy, life even in the midst of challenges, even in the face of death. We know that abundant life. And so again, in our passage, right, we get those great words, grace, justification, righteousness, 
right? We talked about justification earlier in this. You know, it's a, it's a legal term. Basically, you have been found innocent. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. Righteousness, right? Which just speaks of being made right with God, of living a righteous life. And we are told we are given the righteousness of Christ. We are made right with God. We are in right relationship because of what we've received in Christ. We're given grace, forgiveness. So that's the abundance that we see here. And even if we're honest, we have to say, well, this isn't fair either. Right? Except this time we're happy it's not fair. Right? This time we're overjoyed that it's not fair because we have to say, wow, Jesus' death on my behalf brings me life. His resurrection brings me resurrection, right? I did not earn it. I could not earn it. But it is a gift that's given to me. There's the emphasis here on the obedience of Jesus, right? Compared, contrasted to the disobedience of Adam. And again, we can feel for Adam, right? We can all relate, right, to his mistake to Adam and Eve and to their giving into that sin. But the fact is, it was selfish, wasn't it? They've been given a garden, you know, full of every tree that they can partake of. God had poured out abundant love and provision upon them. And they selfishly grabbed for the one thing that he had asked them not to grab for. Right? They took it because, right, the tempter, right, the serpent had told them, you will be like God. As though this great selfish moment. And again, they had been told at this point, right, you are called to be, have dominion over all creation. You're given responsibility. You are called to be fruitful and multiply. I've honored you with this calling. And they acted selfishly. And it hurt them, and it's hurt us all. And yet Jesus came and acted selflessly. When we think about the life that we receive in Christ, ultimately what we receive is Jesus himself. He gives his life to us. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what we receive. We receive him, as it says in our, our creed, right? It's for us and for our salvation that he came down for heaven. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He gives us himself. Right? And again, you may say, that's not fair, but that's what we receive. One other difference, right, is that the, the, again, death, sin is unwillingly given to us, right? We don't choose it. But again, it's, it's what we inherit. It's what comes to us as humans. But we willingly receive the grace of our Lord. We willingly receive his life. Now, the points actually in this passage where you could take them out of context, you could say, I'll die in Adam, I'll live in Christ, right? And again, that's wanting to bring out the contrast but it's also very clear this gift of life is to be received. We see it here. We see it in other places. It's the importance of faith, which we've talked about in this series, right? We receive in faith. Faith is not a way we earn salvation. Faith is a way that we receive the gift of salvation that we cannot earn as we turn to Christ and receive the gift that only he can give. And so that's willingly received. That is a calling upon us to receive and to welcome this gift. Now, once again, that's a challenge for many. Right? Many feel like, well, why? You know, if we're given death, whether we want it or not, why do we have to receive, right? Why do we have to turn and open our hands to receive through faith, in, in faith, that gift of eternal life? And of course, one thing we can say is that's the way gifts work, right? Gifts need to be received, especially the gift of a relationship. Jesus is giving himself to us, his life to us. How can he force that upon us? Right? Jesus respects us too much. He respects humanity too much to force upon us a gift. You know, as a pastor, actually, it, I learned as, you know, part of being a pastor of a church is you're offered gifts, actually, that you have to say no to, which always feels bad as a pastor. But lots of times over the years where I've been told, here's a gift we want to give to the church, I've actually had to say, 
no, sorry, we actually don't want that gift. We've been offered so many pianos over the years. It's really nice. I mean, people from our neighborhood will come in. I've got this great piano. I have to say, we like our piano, actually. We don't want another piano. We don't want rooms filled with pianos. They're very heavy. They're hard to move around. It feels ungrateful. Maybe you've been offered a gift before. We had to say no. Again, Jesus respects us and honors us. and says, here's a gift, but it's yours to receive. But even as we acknowledge that, and I hope we can resonate with that, I know that the question becomes, oh, but what about those who you know, have never heard of the gift? What about those, a really pertinent question people ask is, what about those who have been so hurt by the church, who have been so hurt by Christians, that they don't even believe, right, that this is a true gift, because the people telling them about this gift actually have so broken their trust? There are many questions around that. And again, it's, it's good to ponder these questions. It's good to think about theology, right? I encourage you to do so. But my encouragement is also, as we ponder these questions, to focus on what do we do, what do we know, right? What have the scriptures shown us? And what they have shown us and revealed is only in Jesus that we are saved. It's his name alone by which we have salvation. It's so clear. But what the scriptures also show us is that the compassion and the love and the mercy of God is more than we can ask or imagine, beyond our imagination. And yes, his holiness is beyond our holiness, his justice is beyond our justice, but his love is beyond our love. And so my encouragement as you ponder theological questions, if you ever find yourself believing that you're more compassionate than God, that you're more loving than him, you can just say, whoop, I know that's not true, right? I know it's not true, right? I worship a Lord who, as he was put on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. I worship the Lord that First Timothy tells us desires all to be saved. He desires all to come to the knowledge of truth. And so again, as we wrestle with this question, right, what I would encourage you to do is to pray for those who have not received this good news. As we say, well, what about those? What about those? And we can say, Lord, I pray for those. I pray that eyes would be open. Those I know, those I don't know. Right? I give thanks for those who have given their lives to sharing that good news. Lord, use me to share this good news. Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't wrestle with questions and, and, and truths that may um, uh, shake us. But again, what do, the, what do the scriptures call us to? And may we embrace that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful this day that we can celebrate just the clarity of the gospel. We thank you for this teaching from Romans where we just see so clear the life, the righteousness, the abundance, the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. I pray for each person here today that they would know that gift Lord, I would ask that for those who have not received it, that they would have their eyes opened to see the beauty and the um, reality of that gift. And Lord, we pray um, for those who have not received this gift, Lord, that again, we would just pray that you would give us the opportunity to share, to, to reveal the, this gift. Give us faith, Lord, we pray. And we pray again for those without faith, um, that they would be given faith, we ask. We bring all these prayers before you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.